Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello. I want to welcome listeners to the February Physical Therapy Journal podcast. I'm Alan Jetty. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Physical Therapy Journal. The focus of this podcast today is an article that was published in PTJ's Health Services Research Special Series, and it was written by first author Dr. Rebecca Galloway and colleagues, and the title of the article is Hospital Readmission Following Discharge from Inpatient Rehabilitation for Older Adults with Debility. Welcome, Dr. Galloway. Appreciate your taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I really enjoyed reading the article, and I have several questions that I thought I would begin with to help the listeners understand where you're coming from in your research. And so my first question is, could you talk just a little bit about why you wanted to focus on the older individual with debility in your investigation? I had actually been interested in older adults with debility for quite some time during my clinical career. And after I transitioned to academia and continued to practice clinically with an emphasis in acute care, noticed that while we were spending a lot of time working with older adults to prevent debility or what we know as deconditioning, develop treatment plans, and particularly participate in with interdisciplinary teams for discharge planning, while this was a prevalent condition that it really was sort of understudied in the literature. There wasn't a whole lot of evidence to help support the clinical decisions and recommendations that we were making. And so when I had an opportunity during my Ph.D. dissertation phase, noticed that the inpatient rehab setting was one setting where there was an opportunity to study this group a little bit more specifically. It is the only post-acute care setting that has an impairment group that is specific for debility. And so there began the journey to study the trends in this group a little bit more, and then we noticed that discharges to acute care and readmissions after being discharged to the community were particularly high in this prevalent group. And so that warranted some more thinking about why might this be and can we figure out what factors would be associated with that to help provide just more evidence for the decisions and recommendations that we're making clinically. Well, I was very pleased to see you focus on it because in my experience, it really is an underappreciated and underrecognized group and frequently overlooked. And that immediately struck me when I read your paper. I was also struck in reading your paper that the prevalence of debility in inpatient rehab has not been static. It's grown. I think you cite in your paper in 2004 about 4%, and now by 2013 it's risen to 10% in prevalence in inpatient rehab. Could you say a few words about why you think that increase has occurred? My first thought was that, as you mentioned, that this is interesting. It also is surprising more so when you look at the absence of an indication for it. So no one is completely sure why the prevalence has risen. The only health policy change that we could identify that would be 
either coincidental or perhaps somehow related during that time frame is the 60% rule for inpatient rehabilitation facilities. And so over time, from about 2004 until 2007, there was quite a bit of change in the criteria related to that rule. So that rule has to do with there being certain conditions, a list of 13 different diagnoses, that are looked at in regards to whether a patients have that condition or not when they're admitted. And so it has to do with really with inpatient rehabilitation facility meeting criteria to be an inpatient rehab facility. So if it used to be called the 75% rule, in which case the goal was, well, by 2007, 75% of a facility's patient population over a certain period of time would come from this list of 13 diagnoses. Now, that was supposed to be phased in from about 50% in 2004 up to 75% in 2007. However, at the end of 2007, that target of 75% was revised to 60%. And that's where it currently stands today, is at 60%. What's interesting, though, is that debility was never included in that list during any of those years. And so that's the interesting component is that whether or not the change in that percentage requirement being relaxed from 75 to 60 allows for further consideration of other diagnoses like debility. However, the same trend wasn't seen with other diagnoses like joint replacement. And so it's still really unclear what role that plays. All we can do is, is look descriptively at changes in health policy. I've not been able to identify any other rationales for why there would be that change. It would be helpful if we had trends in prevalence of the development of debility during acute care over a similar time frame, but that data is not available on a national level. There's no standardization of that diagnosis in acute care. Well, you know, the other thing that struck me is that in your sample, with stability, the length of stay in inpatient rehab was just under 12 days. How does that compare to inpatient rehab patients who did not have a diagnosis of debility? In looking at data for, like, say, the largest, six largest impairment groups, the average is about 12 and a half days. So it's a typical length of stay. Joint replacements tend to be on the shorter side, and stroke tends to be on the little bit longer side. So you have a range of like nine days up to like 15 days. And when I looked at the admission FIM scores, the motor mean was around 41, and the FIM cognitive was around 25. What does that tell you about the functioning of these patients, and how does that compare to the non-debility inpatient rehab patients? So it helps to keep in mind how many items are within the subscales. And so when we look at the FEM motor subscale, it includes 13 items. And so if the you assumed that the items averaged out, which there's some difference in that, then it's about a 3.2 average per item for a motor item. Most of the motor items, when we looked at them individually, were a 2 or a 3. The only one that was higher, that was more like a 5, was eating. 
So if you think about a FEMS score of a three, that's what we call moderate assistance. And so the patient would be performing half to not quite three quarters of the motor effort. And then the care provider would be performing the other portion of that. And with maximal assistance, it would be even more. So we're looking at an average of moderate assistance on motor items coming in. For cognition, they performed higher on admission. And so with the cognitive items, there's five of those. And so the average is more like five. The range of those individual items was 4.6 to 5.4. And so on the cognitive items, patients are performing closer to a supervision level, which is a higher level of cognition when you compare cognition to motor. So that might explain why the FIM motor was related to readmission but not the FIM cognitive. Yes. For this particular group, yes, they were higher functioning, and so it wasn't surprising to us that motor was more important in this particular patient population. One of the things that struck me was when I looked at your results, a third of your cohort was readmitted within 90 days, and you made note in your article that that readmission rate was similar to readmission rates among Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries uh, who were just discharged out of the acute hospital. Did this surprise you, and did it raise any questions in your mind about how effective the inpatient rehab stay might have been for this cohort, or do you think they're totally unrelated phenomenon? I think one of the big residual questions is how related they are, and our study design was able to do many things, but the relationship between those factors, I think, warrants investigation. The Medicare fee-for-service article from an acute care standpoint, discharging from acute care and being readmitted, which was done by Jinx, is a very popular article. One important note about that article is they actually looked at potentially healthier Medicare cohort, considering that they excluded people who were discharged to inpatient rehab from the hospital. And so while it is a really important article for further rehospitalization papers to compare their outcomes to, if we're looking at discharge from post-acute care settings and then onward, there are some differences in the, the patient populations within a Medicare group. We knew from looking at descriptive trends in earlier studies that stability consistently for inpatient rehab has the highest readmission rate compared to stroke and fracture and, and other groups. And we continue to be a little bit surprised and perplexed by all the reasons that might be behind that. And so I think that was part of our rationale in investigating these factors, because it is very plausible that risk factors can be quite different by diagnostic group, and that makes sense. You know, motor function tends to be one of those things that we see is consistently a factor in different patient populations. But, for example, whether or not cognition is varies by the population. And demographic factors seem to vary by the patient population as well, which is interesting. Well, you know, speaking of demographic factors, I was struck in looking at your findings that living situation and gender were not mm -hmm. associated with risk of readmission. Yes. Did, and, did and that surprise you? It surprised me. It did. It did. And age surprised me as well. And not quite sure why that is. We do know that the social support factors in particular are, you know, they're limited in what is collected in the earth pie. And when you do 
research using large administrative data sets, you have to choose from what is routinely collected and available and, and required of sites to fill out so that you have complete data. And so it's only logical that there are other social support factors that might be at play here. How much caregiver support? So you could say someone's discharging to live with family, but what does that really mean? Fair enough. Fair point. Yeah, and it you know, clearly is much, one of yeah, it's one of the limitations of a secondary analysis. Right. It's so someone could have, say, going to live with a family member, and just from my clinical experience, that might mean, well, someone's only there in the evenings and the family all works during the day, or it could mean that they have 24-hour support. And so even the availability of someone to be with them and to recognize signs that might warrant medical attention, I think there's quite a bit of variation in that. My final question, Dr. Galloway, is could you share with listeners what you see as some of the major clinical as well as policy implications of the findings from your study? Well, I think one of the things that is particularly supportive of a physical therapist role is that we identify changes in important variables like motor function on a daily basis in clinical practice. And so while we confirmed that that was important, we went a little bit further out than some other studies have and identified, well, for how long is that helpful information? And so while having higher motor function when a patient discharges is protective, that effect diminishes after 60 days. And so if we're considering what we know at a patient's discharge from inpatient rehab and what their risk is day 60 and beyond, there are much likely other things at play that we would need to know. And so all that improvement and that effect of making the patient stronger and more functional during that inpatient rehab stay, unfortunately, is not going to have an everlasting effect on that patient's risk. There were also some specific comorbidities that stood out that are really important for therapists to watch for and monitor. And these are conditions that can be very subject to a patient's change in medical status and that there may be signs that we can pick up on during their rehab stay that we could then communicate to the team. And so heart failure is one of those examples. It is one of the common reasons that patients are readmitted and there are some classic signs and symptoms when a patient is becoming decompensated and when the management of their heart failure is not optimal. And so in an inpatient setting, we're the ones that see the nurses might monitor and do monitor their vital signs, but that's typically at rest. We're the ones that see their response to exercise. And so continuing to monitor all of those signs, particularly for patients at high risk, is important to convey so that if there is something going on that needs follow-up or monitoring prior to their discharge that we effectively address those issues and concerns. One of the most important things to consider from my understanding this patient population is that currently we still have quite a bit of limitation in defining the stability diagnosis. And so we were able to study it in the inpatient rehab setting but moving forward, should we want to compare outcomes across post-acute settings, which is a really important current issue in healthcare policy, there are barriers and limitations to identifying a similar cohort 
in a skilled nursing setting and in a home health setting sure. and in an acute setting as well. To say nothing about uh, common measures of the outcomes that you're interested sure. in. <laughs> Absolutely. So those are things that can be challenging in a patient population that is currently defined more from a perspective of a diagnosis of exclusion than it is identifying what clinical indications are there to confirm our diagnosis of debility. And so I think that warrants quite a bit more thought and study. Well, Dr. Galloway, I really want to thank you for taking the time today to talk with us about your article and for publishing it in the special series on health services research. And I want to encourage listeners who might be interested to take a look at some of the other articles that are in the series. I think you'll find them also extremely interesting. And thank you for listening.